It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. About half the people on the planet go through menopause, but we hardly talk about it. Even a lot of women reaching menopausal age don't quite know what's about to happen to them. When we read papers about menopause, we read things in the news, it's like the death of ovarian function, as opposed to, no, it's the fact that we keep on living. That's a different perspective, right? The vacuum of information on menopause can keep women from getting help for their symptoms. Or they can end up wasting time with false solutions peddled by snake oil salespeople. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. Two experts in women's health meet on stage for a panel that sets the record straight on menopause. Jen Gunter is an obstetrician and gynecologist with a strong internet presence. She's also the author of The Menopause Manifesto. Nanette Santoro is the head of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Colorado's Medical School. She's been involved in several landmark studies on menopause. New York Times health journalist Margot Sanger-Katz moderates the conversation. Here's Sanger-Katz. I think menopause is this topic. It is a very common experience, basically a universal experience for women. Um, But I think it's often misunderstood and not very often discussed. And so I think this is a good opportunity to try to demystify things a little bit and uh, talk about what's going on. So I want to start basic and then we'll get specific. Um, Jen, I was hoping you could kick us off and just like tell us like, what is menopause? What are we talking about when we talk about menopause? Sure. So menopause is the planned end of ovarian function. We're all born with the number of follicles or eggs that we're ever going to have. Those are the ones that produce the estrogen that travels throughout our body. And uh, in our mid-40s, obviously it can change based on um, different uh, differences, but ovulatory function begins to wind down and eventually stops. And so when you haven't had a period for a year, that's the definition of menopause. We diagnose it in reverse uh, because you you don't know it's your last one until it's been your last one. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the basic kind of medical explanation. But obviously there are many symptoms that can go along with it. And menopause can also trigger changes in the body that increase the risk of certain health conditions. But it is a normal physiologic event in many ways, like puberty, but puberty in reverse. And Annette, how well do we understand this process? Like, do you feel like as doctors and scientists, like we know what we need to know about this, or is there still uh, opportunity for more exploration? There's always opportunity for more exploration, but we actually have a very nice body of knowledge on the process through menopause for many women. Um, And that study was called the SWAN study, the study of women's health across the nation. That's the US version, but there's studies from the Netherlands and Australia that really describe the process very well. And instead of this sort of nice, quiet sort of winding down of ovarian function. You may have this image of sort of Whistler's mother, you know, kind of knitting in the chair while her ovaries are slowly going to sleep. It's much more of a roller coastery process where there's ups and downs in hormones. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of the hormone geek on this, so stop me if I go on for too long, but uh, hormones really do go up and down and that can cause a lot of the symptoms that happen short term. And then as Jen said, long term, after menopause is over, most hormone production uh, for estrogen and absolutely for progesterone goes away. 
and the consequences of those changes uh, will alter, can alter a woman's uh, course, life course. And we have chronicled both the hormones and those other changes in the period before, about five to 10 years before, and now about 15 to 20 years after menopause. So with the caveat that there is a range of experiences of menopause, uh, Jen, can you tell us a little bit about what that roller coaster feels like for a lot of women? What are some of the accompanying symptoms? Yeah, so the menopause transition is what a lot of people might think of as perimenopause or premenopause. And that is that sort of period of time of winding down. And obviously, just as Nanette said, some, that can be really hormonally chaotic for a lot of people. And the symptoms that can be associated with it during the menopause transition, abnormal bleeding can be a big one. People can have an increased incidence of depression, uh, hot flashes, and sleep disturbance related to that, vaginal dryness. And the thing about the menopause transition, I think, is it is very chaotic hormonally, and it seems that there are not sort of two identical experiences. We can sort of group people into, well, there's groups of people who tend to have this and groups of people who have that. But, you know, kind of just like everybody had a different puberty experience, it's this the same kind of thing. And one of the big mis sort of misinformation sort of things out there is that symptoms don't start until you're menopausal, meaning the end of ovarian function. But we know from all this elegant work with the swan that, um, that we know people can have very bad symptoms beforehand. And then symptoms may progress or change after, after menopause. And so after menopause, you know, dryness, vaginal dryness may become more prominent. That usually gets worse with age, an increased risk of bladder infections, uh, and uh, other symptoms that can be seen in the menopause transition are anxiety and heart palpitations. And so there's really a, a large constellation of symptoms that can happen. And there's people who also have very minimal symptoms. I think it's always important to say that, that there are some people who have, you know, very bad symptoms, other people who don't, and then there's people in the middle. To what degree do you guys think of it as a medical problem, a disease or a disorder for which we should be treating people? And to what degree is it just, this is a process and you kind of have to live through it and... Well, when you look at geriatric populations and people of different ages and who have lived to be the very old uh, centenarians, their menopause experience is a, sort of a speed bump. It's not something that resets your course on a permanently you know, terrible uh, trajectory, but it is something that can cause symptoms that people get over. And for the most part, that's the case. So it does need to be managed while it's going on. And anything that sets a woman up because of her own personal risks for longer term health risks, things we worry about are heart disease, dementia, osteoporosis, uh, those, sh those can be addressed early and often they can be identified early. I'm really interested in this metaphor of puberty, uh, which is this other developmental stage in which uh, you know, all of us go through hormonal nonsense and uh, experience a lot of physical changes as well. And I just feel like we have all of these cultural scripts ar around puberty. We get, you know, most of us get some kind of education about it in school. We had Judy Bloom. Uh, it's just, I feel like it's understood and talked about and absorbed into the popular culture. And I'm curious why we don't have those kind of scripts around menopause, why it isn't talked about and sort of shared in the same way when it is in some ways a similar process. Well, I think some of it's been, you know, lack of information uh, from, you know, medical providers all the way down sort of historically and, you know, really 
I think only becoming a really important research focus, you know, maybe, I mean, it's been studied for a long time, but really kind of taking off in the last sort of 20 years or so. I think also though too, it's, you know, the patriarchy and ageism and, you know, men are silver foxes and women become hags. I mean, that's, right? I mean, that's really the narrative. Um, and when you think about it, you know, what that means is we're distilling the worth of a woman to being a breeder right? That if you're only of value when you're producing ovaries and as long as, when you're producing follicles and as long as your breeder status goes away, then, you know, who cares? And so, you know, it's obviously insulting and infuriating on many levels and that's probably a simplistic summary of it, but I, I think it really gets to the heart of it. You know, ageism uniquely affects women. Nana, do you have theories about this? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to echo that sentiment that there's a negative narrative around menopause and a lot of the rescue narrative then becomes, oh my goodness, we must do something to treat it. And then many miracle treatments come up and that sort of feeds the disinformation circle, uh, that we, vicious circle that we can sometimes get stuck into. I do also want to point out that not all menopause narratives are negative. So some culturally, uh, different cultures have different uh, appreciations of menopause, and even within the United States, as we learned in the Swan study, where we had African-American women, we had white women, we had Hispanic women, we had Chinese and Japanese women represented, that for black women, menopause, meaning the end of menstrual periods, is a very welcome event. For many women, the end of contraception is a very welcome event. So those are some of the things that are, you know, could be celebrated about menopause. We can change this narrative. Yeah, I mean, I can wear white pants now and I have to wear <laughs> I also wonder if it's, you know, when we go through puberty, we're in school and there's just a great opportunity to have education around it. And obviously when we go through menopause, we're older and we can come here. But I wonder if there need to be some kind of educational traditions for older people to kind of fill that gap. Well, I'm always big on education. I think that knowledge is power, and especially with your health, you can only be empowered to make decisions with accurate information. You know, that is like a tenet of, you know, medicine. When we, when we explain surgery to somebody, we have to explain the risks, we have to explain the benefits. If nobody explained the risks to you, you didn't make an informed decision. So we need to have more information so people can be more informed consumers. Um, but I also think too, like if, I mean, how many people here in the room really remember their puberty that well? And I think it gets back to that, the further you get, something becomes kind of a blip in your life. And so, you know, that, that we have historically gone through menopause quite well, with obviously, you know, caveats that people can have health problems, that we have great medicine that can be help, you know, helpful for people. But I absolutely agree. If you don't talk about it, you think you're the only one. You know, the number of women I, I speak to who think, what do you mean irregular periods are part of the menopause transition? Even though it's not something that happens to like 80% of people, right? So it's, we really need to start talking about it in constructive ways. I'm interested in some of the quackery, uh, Nanette, that you mentioned that, you know, into the information vacuum and the fear, uh, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of bad treatment. Um, how bad do you think it is? Can you give some examples of bad things that you've seen? One, one of the glaring examples in my field is really the, how many of you have heard about compounded bioidentical hormones promulgated by Suzanne Summers at our bestseller books? Oprah, how could you? They, she, <laughs> this was promulgated on the Oprah show. Uh, 
This is something that was actually very thoroughly looked at a couple of years ago by the National Academy of Medicine. They had two years of testimony, discussions, meetings with people who were pharmacists, compounders, etc., and came to the conclusion that this is something that is absolutely not evidence-based, should not be recommended for people, and that FDA-approved prescription medications are, uh, should be the gold standard for treatment for menopausal symptoms. They also called for a great deal of more oversight. All of this was published during the middle of the pandemic, and it landed to, I would say, crickets. Um, so there hasn't been a whole lot of action on this, but this is just a practice that shouldn't be going on, and it's going on very widely. How many of you have heard about miracle pellets that cure everything that's wrong with you? We call them the chip in the hip. You know, that's another absolutely not evidence-based. There's no FDA regulation of it. Um, and it's just going on left and right. And there, most of the nutraceuticals in this field, the dietary supplements, have actually been proven to be ineffective. Uh, many people still take them because they are low cost and they have low potential for harm in general. But there's a lot of sort of churn that goes on that, that people can waste time getting to effective treatments for symptoms. Yeah, and I would, I would echo all of those things. And I think one of the big problems with things like supplements or the sort of less prescription aspect of it is they do lead to a delay in care and then people get very desperate and then they jump to these things like pellets or compounded things. And when you're not limited by the truth and you can say whatever you want, you can make your therapy sound great. And when you're limited by being factual, it changes the conversation just a little bit, right? So yeah, we see it's very predatory, the marketing with, you know, frank disinformation. And, you know, who, who doesn't want a magic wand to wave and make everything go away? I, I want that for everything to do with my health as well. But, you know, I think that it's very hard to compete when there's no regulation. And I always like to quote this study with black cohosh. How, how many people here have heard about taking black cohosh for menopause? Okay, wait. So the studies are very low quality. And one group of researchers took a whole bunch of black cohosh that was on the shelf, and they did you know, DNA testing to see what was actually in the black cohosh. And about 25% of the samples had no black cohosh at all. So then the researchers wondered, well, maybe it was like they picked the wrong plant like next to it, which, you know, that's probably not, like, I want to know what plant I'm putting in my body. <laughs> but it's, they didn't find, so black cohosh is native to North America. The, all those ones that didn't have black cohosh didn't have any plant matter that's native to North America. Zero regulation. Could you imagine if every time you went to the grocery store and you bought a can of chickpeas that 25% of the time it had corn? You would be furious. You would be infuriated. It would probably be on the news, right? They'd have like a 60-minute session on it. But here we are, like, you have no idea what's in it, you know? It's buyer beware. Can you talk a little bit about the bioidentical bio -identical hormones and, and why that's bad? Because I do think, you know, there are FDA-approved hormone therapies, right? There are, F well, first of all, bioidentical doesn't really mean anything. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. that's a, it's a good start. problem. Uh, <laughs> If you mean the exact molecular structure of what the ovary makes, there are absolutely FDA-approved bioidentical estradiol and progesterone that are available in many forms that women can take that have proven safety and efficacy. And those are the two things you have to prove if you're FDA-approved substance. If you are not, you do not have to prove, you do not need the same proof of claim. So the labeling for these substances applies to FDA standards. It does not, if you are 
using a non-FDA-approved compounded substance. So women read the label on the estradiol prescription I've given them, and the few who do every year will call me up and say, what are you giving me? You know, this is scary. I said, well, you know, we did talk about this. You know, these are some of the potential risks. Uh, if they were to get a compounded bioidentical hormone from a pharmacist, they would have no such labeling. Now, can a pharmacist weigh out hormones correctly? Absolutely. But hormones that are compounded are put in some sort of excipient, usually a cream. They're rubbed into your skin. Some of them are not absorbable as a cream, so you may not actually be getting any of that hormone into your bloodstream. And the cream may affect the pharmacokinetics. So the dose and duration of what you're getting can vary incredibly widely. And similar to what Jen said about black cohosh, when the FDA has gone to look at some of these compounds, they found wildly variable um, concentrations well beyond the plus or minus, uh, they think it's 20% that you must have to be considered reasonably reliable. And I think the problem with terms like bioidentical, right? So that's a God term, right? We all associate benefit with that. But you know, I, your bioidentical estrogen from your ovaries can give you breast cancer and your bioidentical estrogen from your ovaries can, can give you endometrial cancer. So bioidentical doesn't imply safety. It's just about the molecular structure. But what people, when they hear that, or when they hear things like plant-based, um, what they do is they, it conjures up this image of somebody like grinding something with a mortar and a pestle and being very <laughs> like natural and safe and good. And these are all marketing terms. This is all rhetoric, right? And so when, we're stuck with the devil terms like talking about risks and benefits and things like that and so I urge people to not use those terms because you know the true the estrogen you know that we all get if you 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 buy a pharmaceutical compound or you you get a compounded one right it all comes it's all made in the same way by a process called the marker degradation where you take a chemical found in soybeans or yams and exposed to multiple multiple other chemicals in a very complex sort of sequence of events to turn one substance into a hormone that it's not very na it's very natural right but that's what how those hormones are made so again that's why knowledge is power I want to talk a little bit about the FDA-approved hormones because I feel like hormone replacement therapy um, has it's been a bit of a wild ride over the last few decades. There was, uh, I feel like there were some people who were saying at one time, you know, put it in the water uh, that uh, every woman should take replacement hormones that it could avoid some of the unpleasant symptoms associated with menopause and could prevent a lot of the illnesses associated with being postmenopausal, And then there was a big study that found, no, you know, perhaps these hormones actually increase women's risks of certain kinds of uh, health problems. And now it seems like maybe things are coming back around again. So can, can you, uh, the two of you, give us a sense of what we know about those hormones, uh, what the risks are, what the benefits are, and who they're appropriate for now? Sure. But first, I would like to lose the word replacement okay. when we talk about hormone replacement therapy, because it's therapy. Um, it's not like a diabetic who needs insulin or someone with a hypothyroid who must have thyroid hormone. It's really to treat the symptoms. But uh, hormone therapy has fed into a very long historical narrative that menopause is aging, aging is bad, estrogen will turn that back beginning in the 60s with the whole feminine forever stuff. There was a book written by a gyneco prominent gynecologist that caught fire and sent women running for hormones because this was going to be the fountain of youth for them. Uh, hormones were used in the 70s. The increased risk of endometrial cancer was noted with estrogen use. So we then learned that we had to give progesterone with the estrogen, and there was a bit of a reduction in use. And then hormone therapy came back 
with a second wave because there was belief that it might reduce heart disease. And the belief that it might reduce heart disease was based on a study called the Nurses' Health Study. And this was a large cohort study. It's very well done, but a cohort study is not the same as a randomized clinical trial. So when the cohort study showed, which was a very impressive protective effect of hormones on subsequent heart disease, so women that took them beginning with menopause seemed to have long-term protection on the magnitude of almost 40%. And this led to the sort of water supply theory, like, holy cow, if this is real, it actually is a very beneficial thing. So the NHLBI uh, took on this study. Can I interrupt for one second? Can we just talk about what a cohort study is? Sure. So a cohort study is when you're looking at two groups of people, or you're looking at one group and you just isolate one variable. So I, if I took everybody in this room and I looked at every one of you who took an aspirin last night and then followed you for 10 years and looked at the aspirin takers versus the non-aspirin takers and looked at any outcome I wanted to know, um, were you happy, were you sad, are you living, are you dead, you know, whatever it was, uh, that would be using the cohort study and isolating that single variable. We could also look at who wore a red shirt today and do the same comparison. Uh, red shirt, no red shirt, and look at the health outcomes. So cohorts are valuable because they're relatively inexpensive and randomized trials are very expensive. And you can only test one thing at one point in time when you do the randomized trial. So the Women's Health Initiative, Bernadine Healy, got a whole lot of heat for uh, sponsoring this study when she was director of the NIH, and it got done. It was an expensive study, but women were randomly assigned, thousands and thousands of women, to taking hormones or not taking hormones. And then they were followed over time. So now randomization removes a lot of the variables that would have affected my aspirin study or my red shirt study, because maybe you don't like the color red and that's related to something else, or you can't take aspirin because you have a stomach problem, and that's going to make my outcome different in the two groups. So randomization doesn't matter. In the, in the case of hormones, do you have a hypothesis about like, what the cohort methodology might have missed? Like, who, what, are, what are the characteristics of the person who is more yes. likely to take hormones? Yes, thank group? you for asking that. Because if I take a pill every single day of my life with the belief that it's good for me or because it's doing something good for me and curing my symptoms, I'm different than the person who just can't be bothered or maybe the symptom isn't that bad or how many years do I have to take this? People are not great about taking chronic medications. So women involved in the nurses' health study were super health literate because they're nurses. Uh, they had a high degree of what we call an internal locus of control, a belief that your behaviors influence your health outcome. And those things may make you a healthier person. You may be more likely to exercise uh, and attend to other health needs. Uh, so, and get your health screening on time. So all of those things may have affected that outcome. Now, uh, they're not stupid at the nurses' health study. There's incredibly smart investigators, so you try to adjust for those variables, but there's only so much adjusting that you can do, and there may be variables you don't know about. And that is the only way that I can explain why the Women's Health Initiative did not show any cardio protection and uh, the nurses' health study did. So it was, a, it was like a bomb had been dropped in the field because very often you get confirmation when you do these types of studies, and we did not. So the indication to give hormones to protect a woman's heart uh, went away. 
pretty much overnight, and that was met with a reaction that was probably one of the first sort of what I would say backlash disinformation uh, campaigns that I have ever seen. Because many people came back and said, oh, no, no, this study was terrible, it was wrong, those women were all sick, they already had heart disease. And none of that is true. I was a co-investigator at two sites, at New Jersey and at Einstein in the Bronx. These are regular women who didn't have any evident heart disease at baseline who took hormones or didn't take them. So it's very much like what we do in actual day-to-day prescribing. Yeah, I think I would just echo, there's been so much misinterpretation of what the WHI was. And often when I'm at events, people up and say, well, that was such a bad study. And that's just a complete misunderstanding, not only of what the study was, which was incredibly well done. I think it's the largest randomized clinical trial that was ever done. Is that testing a single... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I I mean, and and then there were all these other arms as well that looked at non-medication. I mean, it was a really thoughtful, you know, well-designed trial based on what we knew at the time. And sometimes you hear things you don't want to hear. Obviously, you know, there are other ways to interpret sometimes, you know, once you start looking at study results, then you start looking at subgroups and move on from that. But it really became this this absolute backlash, and I mean, I was practicing at the time, and I, you know, within, you know, a day, there were lawyers, you know, did you take hormones, did you have a heart attack? So all this sort of medical legal aspect came up out of it as well. And at the same time, all this other stuff came up. So a lot of advertising, it was one of the first, I would say, internet campaigns, you know, that I, and I don't think we even knew what was happening while it was going on, but people couldn't real deal with the cognitive dissonance, so they either went into a denial mode, um, but it was very bipolar. So you, you know, was, you were for hormones, you were against hormones, and it's like, no, that's not really what we're talking about. Like, what do they do? Data doesn't lie. People lie. So, uh, you know, a lot of, much was made of that, and people kept inventing, you know, new compounds, and that's where some of the bioidentical world began to get a real foothold. Um, It's estimated that's now a third of the hormone market, so it's very significant. Um, And, you know, that kind of makes it scary. So just to get down to brass tacks, what what does the evidence show now? Like, what do we know about hormone treatment? What does it do? What does it not do? Who does it help? Who, Who does it not help? Well, you have to divide people into a couple of groups. So if you're under the age of 45, that's a bit different. Um, and we know that when menopause starts earlier, then there is an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and um, osteoporosis and dementia. And so hormone therapy is generally recommended for those for who it's safe to take up until then the average age of menopause. And then at that point, you would make a decision like everybody else. And for everybody else, you know, we know that the gold standard treatment for hot flashes is estrogen. It is high effective uh, in relatively low doses Um, and so the estrogen is the gold standard for that sleep disturbance related to that Um, estrogen is also incredibly effective for vaginal symptoms and that can be given vaginally Um, and it can also be used for prevention of osteoporosis and so those are really like the hard you know the hard indications the FDA approved indications and then you know there are some softer indications too you know that's more of a one-on-one kind of discussion with your doctor Um, there is some data about depression in the menopause transition. Um, there's some data for joint pain. It's not great, but there is some data. And so there's these things that are kind of, I would say, like the softer the, the softer thing, but the sort of the FDA-approved indications are, are the ones that I mentioned. 
Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, there's four core symptoms that have been identified. So number one, hot flashes. Number two, vaginal dryness. Estrogen appears to still, best we know, be the very best treatment for those. Uh, sleep can be improved sometimes, and mood can sometimes be improved. And everything else is sort of a one-off shared decision that I will make with a patient because I have had patients with extraordinarily oddball symptoms that get better with hormones and they get worse when they stop and we try it again and they get better. So that's, you've got to conclude they're helping. Yeah, I mean, we know that, that many conditions that women get, uh, things that we have a higher incidence of start around the age of puberty due sort of exposure to estrogen. And there can also then be changes at the other end of the trajectory. So for example, you know, I, because I do a lot of chronic pain, I see a lot of people who developed burning mouth syndrome around the time of menopause. And yeah, that's not an approved indication, but if you have a, you know, a patient with a great history who comes in and I didn't have this and now I have this and this is when it started and they understand the risks and you're going to reassess that person in three months to see if you get the benefit, then that's part of shared decision-making. Instead of what we're seeing is, you know, people listing a, you know, a list of whatever, 30 symptoms and saying every single one of these can be treated with estrogen. And then what happens is not only people are going on it without kind of the follow-up to see did these other symptoms actually improve, but when they don't improve, they're escalating their doses and putting themselves in ranges of doses that really weren't studied. So what are the downsides to taking estrogen and progesterone? So after menopause, the biggest risk and most feared risk that women have with estrogen and progesterone. So these are women that have a uterus because a substantial number of women, about a quarter in our country, have a hysterectomy. They take estrogen only. They do not have this risk. But the risk that uh, is increased is breast cancer risk. So after about four years of hormone use, in the Women's Health Initiative, the breast cancer users had a slightly different pattern. Uh, that The estrogen users had a slightly different pattern of um, breast cancer risk. It diverged from the non-users, the women who took placebo. And so for most uh, people, I tend to be on the conservative side, after about four years, we'll really very seriously reevaluate whether hormones are still helpful, whether they are needed, and if so, continue uh, to use them and just be very diligent about screening. But that does give people a time limit because that's, that's a slow but steady increase of risk with duration of use. So many of my patients will wind up going off uh, between four years and maybe up to 10 years. We now know the average duration of hot flashes, which is the biggest reason to give them, is about seven and a half years. So we can't squeak most people in under that four-year uh, line, so we might have to go to something non-hormonal, some other treatment, or just continue the hormones and accept the risk. But that's some shared decision-making that's made with my patients looking at their personal risks of breast cancer. And again, if you've had a hysterectomy, this risk does not apply to you. So other risks of hormones really uh, are clotting risks that can be serious, more common with oral hormones, we think, but do not have randomized trial data that if you don't give it orally and you give it as a patch, um, or you give it, you can give it vaginally, it's just not by the oral route, that uh, it doesn't have as much risk or it doesn't have any of that risk. And obviously if you're taking estrogen and you have a uterus and you're not taking progesterone or progestin, you have a, 
you over time will develop a pretty astronomical risk of developing endometrial cancer. So, or if you're taking a dose of estrogen that's not matched appropriately, you know, with the progestin. So that's also, you know, the risk to consider, especially with the compounded pellets, because those are un untested, unstudied delivery mechanisms, and especially progesterone isn't absorbed transdermally. You know, it turns out it takes decades of pharmaceutical research to be able to figure out how to put hormones into pills or to absorb from the vagina or absorb across the skin in a way that we can use them. Because you think about it, we didn't evolve to take hormones orally, right? They evolved to have them come through our bloodstream. So, you know, so it takes, it takes actual research to test these compounds. So there are some new treatments for hot flashes in particular that are non-hormonal, and I, Annette, I saw you quoted in the New York Times, I think a few days ago, about uh, one of these that looks promising. Uh, what's out there, and how good are they, and how do they compare in terms of symptomatic relief to the hormone treatments? So this is, this is one of the most exciting developments in the field because we have had very little other than hormones, and of course there are many, many women who cannot take hormones. They have an absolute contraindication, number one being breast cancer, number two being a prior episode of deep vein thrombosis. Those are contraindications, and women who have had those conditions uh, really can't, uh, should not be taking any hormones. So estrogen is off the table, and many of them have miserable, horrible hot flashes. So we have backed into basically all of the other non-hormonal treatments because women with breast cancer would go back to their doctors and there's a series of oncology studies done in the 90s where the clinical oncologist would see their patient back and they'd say, I don't know what you gave me last week, but my hot flashes got better. And they'd put two and two together and then test that substance. So these are all non-FDA approved substances, but many of the uh, antidepressants, one of which is FDA approved, uh, peroxetine mesylate, but many of them in that class will give some relief for hot flashes. Gabapentin will give some relief for hot flashes. And uh, there's a number of other things out there that have some efficacy. And, you know, we serially try them by trial and error in patients that can't take hormones. And you'd get some success, but you couldn't really make everybody completely comfortable. Now, um, based on the biology of where hot flashes originate, we always had this idea that it's your thermoregulatory center in your brain, which was very mysterious. It's in the midbrain, which communicates with the rest of the body. So it's a little bit of a relay center. Uh, but there was a neuropathologist in Arizona who identified these sp specific neurons called candy neurons in the brain. They stand for kispeptin, neurokinin, and dynorphin and they actually govern part of the reproductive system, so they're kind of a master neuron for the reproductive system. But they also, the neurokinin receptor is the important one. So NK3, neurokinin 3, is the receptor that you want to block. And this doctor, this pathologist, then went on with, uh, to study in animals using a cold environment and a hot environment, so you had a tube that was cold or hot, and you block the neurokinin receptor, and you had uh, the animals that all had their ovaries out, so the mice with no ovaries who got the neurokinin blocker didn't care where they were in the tube. It could be cold, it could be hot, it didn't matter. The mice who didn't get the blocker were all sort of huddled at the cold side of the tube. So <laughs> anyone's ever had a hot flash will immediately appreciate what I'm talking about. And uh, this very quickly got moved into clinical studies. And it's highly effective. So uh, 
There have been a couple of bumps along the road. There was a compound in uh, England that had to be stopped because of liver toxicity, but uh, it was the kind of stuff that I was jumping up and down with my colleagues in the back of the room when we saw it at the scientific meetings. The, new, uh, the first one to be approved is called fezolinitant. It was just approved a couple of weeks ago, and it acts at that neurokinin-3 receptor. At the dose that it's approved at, uh, we have to see how that's going to work for the average person because you have to negotiate with the FDA at exactly the dose you're going to use, and they make you balance it versus safety, and they want you to pick the dose that cures symptoms in 50% of people, which to me uh, does not make me happy because it means 50% of people will still have symptoms. But uh, I am not the FDA, so I will comment no further on that. And there's a bunch of other compounds that are now similarly targeting those specific receptors. So we may actually have sort of a, a very precise bullet of an approach that is 100% non-hormonal that we can offer women. So I have one more question that I want to ask, but then it's your turn, so get ready. There will be microphones because this uh, session is being taped. You need to wait for someone to give you a microphone before you start talking, and we would like it if you would introduce yourself. Um, so my last question is, how common is menopause like across animal species? Um, you know, do, do all species of animals have menopause? Is this unique to humans? Um, and do you guys have any theories uh, about why we're designed to outlive our reproductive systems? Yeah, so, you know, most people have probably heard the, the disinformation that women didn't used to have menopause. It's a modern phenomenon because now we're, you know, living old enough. And obviously that's a complete misinterpretation of average life expectancy because your average life expectancy historically was in the 30s and 40s because half of the people died in their first year of life. So it has nothing to do with, um, with uh, sort of aging in general. So orcas, killer whales, um, have menopause, it turns out. Uh, and uh, it, there may be a few other species of tooth whales that do as well in humans. And it's really fascinating because chimps, who are our closest sort of relative um, on the mammalian tree who have very similar ovarian function to us don't. They reproduce until their 40s and then they die and we keep on living. And I think it's a really important narrative because we often, when we read papers about menopause, we read things in the news, it's like the death of ovarian function, as opposed to, no, it's the fact that we keep on living. That's a different perspective, right? And you know, the, the big theory which um, you know, was put forth by Dr. Kristen Hawkins um, is, is the grandmother hypothesis or the wise woman hypothesis. And if you think that evolution is about turning energy into life, right? We, ha we all have to turn our energy around us into the next generation. And when you're menopausal, people would think, well, how is that possible? Because you can't pass your genes along to the next generation. And it's true, you can't. If, if we all kept reproducing throughout our whole lifespan, then when you're 50 and 60, your children are competing with food resources with your grandchildren. But if you are menopausal and you're no longer able to have children, you still have all that knowledge and all that wisdom. And so it's genetics the long game. So when you have post-reproductive women, they're incredibly, um, they are, they contribute incredibly to sort of the family unit and the societal collective, and they are more likely to have grand offspring. And so it's really evolution the long game. I like that. All right, uh, it's time, time for questions. Um, there is a very high hand in the back if someone with a microphone could uh, help this woman in a teal shirt. 
Sorry to be so aggressive. Um, I like it. It's good. But I was here last time, and like they didn't bring the microphones to anybody in the back. So I was like, this time, I'm getting a mic. Um, my name is Ebony Marcel. I'm a midwife. Um, I'm just curious about your thoughts with all these folks having babies after 40 and having babies after 45. Um, that is like during this transition period. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's with, with good screening and good obstetrical care, and as a midwife, you know, I mean, more hypertensive diseases of pregnancy, so they have to be watched more closely, and if they have hypertension, you've got to watch that and look for comorbidities, but a healthy woman uh, generally does quite well through pregnancy at these older ages. And I do reproductive endocrinology, so we do sometimes donor egg cycles in women up to the age of 50. And if you're otherwise healthy, usually you get through pregnancies just fine. And the Italians who are, I guess, maybe the most uh, reverent of motherhood of any nationality, and I, I am one, but uh, they actually had a 64-year-old carry a pregnancy for her daughter, uh, and she did fine. So. We live, we're living to be older than ever before. We don't look twice when like Bob De Niro and Al Pacino, you know, have babies, you know, in their, their 80s and stuff. So uh, I yeah. don't know, I, 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 as long as you can manage it medically, it's not unreasonable. Um, here in the front row. Hello, my name is Emily, I'm a medical student. Um, because menopause is something that happens later in life, there are a lot of folks that are medically taking care of people who have never been through menopause or don't have a uterus and never will go through menopause. What do folks who are going through menopause wish their care providers knew about taking care of them? Well, I think just, you know, as we heard previously in the sleep lecture, I, I was here, you know, there's, there is, I think in many medical schools and unfortunately many residencies as well, not enough taught about menopause. And which is really infuriating because I don't know, that's half the population, right? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, this idea that we need to be better at educating everybody in medicine about menopause. We like alluded to earlier, you know, people with burning mouth syndrome, you know, so you might be seeing your neurologist about that. So it's important for your neurologist to know about it. It's important for your orthopedic surgeon who might be taking care of hip fractures or people with osteoporosis. I mean, it touches everything because our lives, our health touches everything. So I think the most important thing for people to know is what the symptoms are and that there's treatments and that people don't have to suffer. And instead of this whole, well, that's the way it is, that's the joy of you know, being a woman or that's the price you pay or whatever awful you know, trope is said, that we need to do away with that and educate people on the science. Yeah, and I think as a medical student, the two things that I want our medical students to learn at the University of Colorado is when is it menopause and when is it not? Because some, not everything is menopause. And I, I have some patients in my practice who come back again and again saying, I'm sure it's my hormones, I'm sure it's my hormones. Like, I think it's really your thyroid. Like, we keep working on this. And, you know, so sometimes it's, it's a different condition and you can delay the diagnosis. And it can be difficult to pick up. Um, over here. Hello, I'm Reagan McDonald Mosley, the CEO of Power to Decide, and I'm an OBGYN. Thank you so much for your work. Two questions, I'll be brief. One of the critiques I've heard of the Women's Health Initiative is that patients were enrolled from 50 to like 79 years old, which is very different from how we prescribe hormone therapy, right? Like, as you described, we provide it short, smaller doses as a transition for the first few years, maybe up to 10 years. Do you think we would find different outcomes um, in terms of cardiovascular risks 
if the study was redone sort of more like how we prescribe hormones today. And then the second question was about the new therapy, neurokinin-3. Does it also help with some of the other common side effects of menopause, like vaginal dryness and sleep disorders? Yes, yeah, so the WHI did go back and looked in bins and age buckets for the women, and the women in the 50 to 59 age group started hormones within a short time of their final menstrual period, did best in terms of morbidity and cardiovascular. And, and the harm of, found in WHI was tiny. And it may, in fact, it may be correct, it may be confined to those women in the older age groups because you did see more morbidity in that group. But when you looked at all of these women 18 years later, it was kind of a nothing burger. I mean, there was overall no increased dramatic anything. And with all of the stopping of hormone therapy that happened after the WHI, where are the dead bodies? I mean, it's not really, it didn't, it, it's not doing much. I actually had a patient who had a heart attack who was taking hormones who came to me and said, you know, I've been told I must stop immediately. Went back with her and looked at the HERS data, which was the secondary prevention trial. And even in that study, you know, it didn't help but it, it didn't cause like, you know, incredible damage. It wasn't like thermonuclear warfare or anything. I mean, it was just, it was not helpful. So don't, you know, not a good idea to take it. Uh, and unfortunately the NK3 and tags are really best for hot flashes. They may have some sleep benefit, which would make us all very happy in menopause medicine, but uh, we'll see, you know, we really need to see them in real life practice. All right here in the center. Hi, I'm Perry Rochager, and I'm a woman in menopause. Um, one of the questions that, or something y'all didn't address was weight gain, and I just feel like that is the consistent talk among women in menopause. And um, the, some of the health benefits of putting on a few pounds, I think, and I'm just curious what you think. Well, the, the data from, from SWAN actually tells us that menopause is not itself associated with weight gain. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but it's really an aging-related phenomenon um, that, that we gain weight with age. It is true that when the weight that you do gain does more likely go around the middle. And so, and that can also be associated with some other, you know, health consequences, right? Like metabolic syndrome and other things when we put weight around our middle, sort of that visceral fat. Um, but it's sort of more of an, more sort of an aging related trajectory. And it's the same for um, any other time for, you know, for, for managing, you know, weight gain. Unfortunately, there is, again, a lot of predatory um, marketing around that. And I would say that that's probably one of the biggest questions that I get in the office and probably one of the biggest um, things that I see online. Um, so that's kind of my take on that. There's also something that, uh, that's called publication bias, that there's a lot of studies that show that hormones seem to preserve more feminine contours and they, you keep that waistline. I'm sorry, you're not keeping that waistline. The Swan study just showed that I've lived the dream. You've got to give up those skirts that fit you, you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s. It's not happening anymore. Just get elastic. Um, <laughs> virtually everybody has some thickening in the middle uh, in Swan, but there wasn't a large net weight gain. That said, there are some subsets of women that do seem to have much more of a problematic weight gain that they have difficulty controlling. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting because the usual things don't work. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of active research in that area, and hopefully there'll be some good solutions coming up. 
Isn't there some data that shows that it might be high levels of FSH that could be related to weight gain around the middle? There, there is a hypothesis floating out there that, that follicle-stimulating hormone, which is trying to keep telling your ovaries, but they're not listening anymore to make, and so it goes up and up and up. It's stratospherically high after menopause. And if you block that with an antibody in animals, you attenuate some of the fat accumulation. There's also fascinating work on estrogen receptors, again, in the hypothalamus, uh, that if you alter them in some way, you alter eating, but also movement behavior. So there are things that probably are changing, and some women are just, because of their specific, you know, genetics and phenotype and environment, are more susceptible or vulnerable to that weight gain. But, you know, I see them, they come to see me in my office, and they are not happy campers, and these are, you know, very self-efficacious people who have known how to manage their weight through their life, and it's just spiraling. I think it's a, also a good opportunity to talk about representation of real bodies in our society. And, you know, if, if the only sort of bodies over the age of 40 that we see are, you know, people with personal trainers and people who, you know, are being rewarded for looking a very specific way that's not achievable by the majority of the population, that's a big issue. You know, we need to see, you know, people in movies, people in print magazines, people advertising products that are, that are a real-world representation, and, and that's something that I think is a big problem. I'm here in the white hat. What are your thoughts around um, hormone replacement for um, brain fog? You know, many of us in our late 50s and 60s were working into our early 70s. We have significant job responsibilities. Um, you know, brain fog comes along with age. So your thoughts uh, for replacement for brain fog? So the, Sw the SWAN study looked, and a couple of other studies have looked at how cognition might change. We looked at it also in a study called KEEPS, where we gave estrogen. There are not huge group-wide uh, changes in cognition, but there is this maddening word recall and some short-term memory. So uh, that's, that's a vulnerability. It tends to come back. Uh, after the menopause transition is over. So a lot of that has been focused on the transition. Our chair of psychiatry at Colorado, Neil Epperson, is doing some very interesting studies on executive function. And women who have, um, maybe have gone through their whole lives with sort of marginal executive function, notice a deficit that may appear, you know, that, that falls under that definition of brain fog, because it's not, it's not everybody, but some, uh, there have been some remarkable results using adult ADD medication as well as hormones. But hormones uh, can sometimes, you know, they can be tried. It's one of those soft indications, as Jen was saying. They, they don't always work. Uh, her work is also showing that some women with adverse childhood experiences have a worse time going through men menopause with both mood and with cognition. And again, some uh, low-dose stimulants seem to be having some efficacy. I'm very sorry to say that we are out of time, and I don't want to make everyone late for their next uh, panel or for their lunch. So I think that we should end it here, but I suspect that our panelists will stay around for a few minutes. So if, if your question didn't get answered and you want to come up and talk with us, uh, please do. Thank you guys so much for bringing such great questions. Thank you to our wonderful panelists for sharing their knowledge with us. Gunter is an obstetrician and gynecologist and the author of The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto. She's been called Twitter's resident gynecologist, 
the Internet's OBGYN and one of the fiercest advocates for women's health. She hosts the blog, The Vagenda, on medical facts and feminism. Nanette Santoro is the E. Stewart Taylor Chair of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Santoro has headed studies of women with premature and age-appropriate menopause, such as the Women's Health Initiative, the Kronos Early Estrogen Prevention Study, KEEPS, and the study of women's health across the nation, SWAN. Margot Sanger-Katz is a domestic correspondent at the New York Times, where she covers healthcare for the upshot. She's also a regular panelist on Kaiser Health News' What the Health podcast. Previously, she was a reporter at National Journal and the Concord Monitor. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Health team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.